I went into Roots Cafe the other day and I ran into a friend of mine who I happen to know is clean and sober. And he was sitting with his nephew, who I also learned is in sobriety. And I told him about our podcast, Liars, Thieves, Gluttons, and Whores. And he just loved the title and said, oh, I want that on a t-shirt. And I said, well... We might. Oh. Stories about recovery, too. Mm, but mostly stories about how addiction turns smart, sensitive people into liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Liars? And thieves? And gluttons and whores. Oh, liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Oh, my. Liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Oh, my. Liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Oh, my. Welcome, welcome, welcome. You are on the air with me, Nancy Adair, the host and creator of Liars, Thieves, Gluttons, and Whores, the podcast that brings you stories from both the dark side and the light side of addiction and recovery. Each week, I often co-host shows with my brother, Bob, because together we have over 85 years of recovery, from various addictions, and it is that commitment, that commitment to a lifestyle living clean and sober that brings us here today. And today's guest is someone that I decided I wanted to interview. He's a neighbor. Um, You know, I spent 14 years living where I live without getting to know my neighbors. And then during the pandemic, I got a dog, <laughs> a pandemic puppy. And, uh, and I have met many of my neighbors ever since then, including Matt, um, who is with us today. And I just love getting to know my neighbors. And in our multiple conversations, I learned that Matt, is also sober and uh, living a life of clean and sober living. And in addition to learning about his sobriety, why I wanted to have Matt on Liars, Thieves, Gluttons, and Whores is because he has retrofitted a van. And that was just something that I was always interested in myself. It's like I had this fantasy of driving a tiny house around in the summer um, as an artist studio that would just take off to different places in Maine up the coast. Um, And, you know, I'm also a, I don't even know if you know this, Matt, but I'm an interfaith minister, ordained minister. So I was thinking I'd just do, you know, Sunday services at little churches that are closed during the summer or have guest speakers, guest ministers during the summer on many of the islands off of Maine and up along the coast, like I said. And 
then it occurred to me that I'd have to drive the tiny house. And <laughs> that was not part of the great fantasy. So when I saw Matt retrofitting a van, you know, and he's he's in construction for a career um, and he's just doing an incredible job. It, you know, it told me so much about all the, um, the real reason why I want to do this podcast is that it's a life in of clean and sober living that's second to none, you know, where you actually see dreams through and have great adventures and can do it, as I've repeated several times, clean, you know, like without uh, having to add to or, you know, make life better spice it up or dull it down or you know take the pain away or add the drama um with substances we can do that in a myriad of ways so matt i i want to welcome you to ltgw and um and let's get rolling let's do it i didn't know that you were an ordained minister actually no i didn't know that yeah that's cool so you can marry people I can marry people, I can um, bury people, (laughs) and I've done both. Uh, I was marrying people for a long time before I became ordained. In fact, a couple that I saw as their therapist asked me to marry them. And I said, oh my gosh, I'm really honored. That's incredible, And um, but I can't. And they said, yes, you can, and handed me a notary application. They'd thought it all through. (laughs) In Maine, you don't have to be an ordained minister to marry people. You can be a a notary. Uh, Two states in the United States where that's true. So I became a notary and married them. Um, Oh, this is so funny, too. I mean, not not for them, but the fact is I didn't um, mail in the marriage license. <laughs> so they didn't discover that they weren't legally married until they were going through a divorce. Oh, no way. So two it kind of it worked out anyway. <laughs> well, two children and decades later, I, I don't know how well it worked out or whether that was a good thing or bad thing. Maybe it saved them some paperwork. Who knows? (laughs) (laughs) So so that is also part of Liars, Thieves, Gluttons, and Whores. It's, you know, the whole reason, again, for the podcast is, well, first, it's to bring the message of living a good life, clean and sober to the general public and including people who feel that they are themselves addicted or know someone that they fear is addicted to a substance or a process addiction to, um, you know, like gambling or, or gaming or any number of process addictions. Um, it's because I think it's just, our stories are like some of the funniest stories ever too. That I like to say it's tragedy turned into transformation funny to live it but it's really funny to tell it later so it you know and a lot of times like you know like when you know when addicts talk or you know 
they can kind of present this, you know, kind of traumatic story in like uh, in, in a charismatic, funny way, you know. Um, and, you know, like a lot of times, like when you're talking or if I'm talking to like just like I hate to call like them normal people, but like, you know what I mean? Like you, you, you kind of say that in like the recovery community a lot. It's like, oh, like, is it, are they an addict? Like, no, they're a normal person, you know, um, which is kind of weird. But, um, you know, it's like you tell these these stories, you know, to if you will, like a normal person and it's it's not funny. Like, like if you if you actually like you know, like listen to the story and like hear the story. Granted, the storyteller may be telling it in a funny, charismatic way because like it is kind of funny to them now, you know, now that or hopefully that they've been sober for a while um, and you listen to the story. But like, um, you know, part of like my recovery journey has been like I started talking to a therapist. Right. You know, and it says that like right in the book, too. It's like, OK, like sometimes like, you know, issues um, outside of addiction or like kind of like more on like the mental side, you know, don't get fixed through AA, you know, like you have to seek like alternate help. And I'm like, I'm not saying that I need help, but like, I've never tried honestly talking to a therapist and it's like, you know, he, let's call him a normal person. Right. You know, you tell him these stories and it's like, okay, it's like, you know, which, yeah, they're, they're not really funny. It's kind of sad. You know what I mean? Um, and not to kind of jump around, but it's just like funny that like um, you say that, that um, they're, that they're some of the funniest stories and they are, you know, uh, like I, I couldn't tell you how many crazy stories, you know, and a lot of them are hilarious, um, but some of them are pretty dark, you know, and it's like you mentioned, uh, what was it like the, um, the, the brightest times and the darkest times, like, I feel like even like in the darkest times, it never seemed really that dark, you, you know, like it, it might've been the darkest time, but like when you're in the midst of addiction, you know, like it doesn't seem like darkness. It, well, it didn't to me at least, you know what I mean? That was just life. You know what I mean? That was life then. And thinking about it now, um, it, it, it's like, yeah, that was pretty, that was pretty dark. But like when it was happening, it just, it was like, that was the way it was. Yeah, I was thinking back to when I was 17 and already, you know, well into my multiple addictions, blackout drinking often mm -hmm. and getting home thinking that was really cool, that I had no idea how I managed that, but I was home and I was home safe and I drove, you know, and I'm thinking that's really cool. It's like, oh God, not, not to the parent, you know? <laughs> no, not at all. I mean, yeah. I mean, I like me too. I mean, I started like, you know, drinking and doing drugs at a really young age. I mean, like re really young, you know, my father was addicted to drugs. I didn't really see too much of him. I was kind of raised by my stepdad and my mom. Like he was always in my life. I would see him every other weekend or like, oh, sometimes we had to see um, like a third party, um, you know? it was like a supervised visit, you know, that, that was a debacle, but like my dad, you know what I mean? I always knew that he was like an addict, right. You know, like that was always thrown around when I was younger, like, Oh, like an addict addict. So like, like, like this addiction thing, like at a really young age, like 
was curious to me right i was like oh like this addict being being addicted being like what is like so like i'm a curious mind just like what is being addicted right so like you know at a really young age it's like okay like cigarettes are addicted like i want to smoke cigarettes to know what it's like to be addicted like i want to know what it feels like to be addicted like it's like you know be careful what you wish for because um and it was like the first Cigarettes were probably the first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Probably, um, you know, that was like, I don't want to say like ready, readily available, but like, you know, like you could, you back then, you know, you could steal them. Um, you know, like I was born, I was born in 1986. So like, um, you know, um, but back then, you know, they, they didn't keep the cigarettes behind the counter like they do now. So like, you know, like that was like kind of the beginning of like, you know, this criminal drug addict career that, you know, I, I started. But yeah, cigarettes and and um, and theft was probably, you know, the beginning of the, you know, the, the rise and demise, I guess, if you will. You know, theft was really early for me, too. Um, I would steal everything including shoes from these they had these shoe stores i'm quite a bit older than you are uh they had shoe stores where you could go in i went in as a preteen teenager put new shoes on and walked out of the store leaving my old shoes on the shelf that's a great move i've been i've done that you know uh, you know you just it's more of just a trade it's not even stealing you know like i gave them my other ones they're you know they got though they were still kind of good um bless my mother because i think she knew a whole lot of stuff that she never uh, left knowing she she'd say to me why do you have so many new pairs of shoes i said mom you know my friends and i we just are the same size and we we trade all the time and uh, and she showed me a newspaper article one time about a neighbor of ours who um, ran an antique store in another town that had been robbed. I was the one who stole these um, white diamond wedding rings and from the back of this antique store. It, they just sparkled. When my mom showed me the newspaper article, I hid those rings in the backyard. Oh, no. (laughs) I always wanted to go back, you know, when it was decades later with a a metal detector. They're still back there? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you got got to get those. Like, where is that in Connecticut again? I feel like the statute of limitations are probably up on that, right? For sure. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, a nice pair of earrings. Oh, yeah. But yeah, it's it's wild. It's like, yeah, just it sparkled. You know what I mean? So like it what it just enticed you to take it, you know, um, and, and I don't know, like where really that came from, you know? Well, I mean, my dad was, you know, like I, I would go into Home Depot as like a young kid with my dad and he would like, you know, he would just walk right out with things. It was wild, you know? Um, and, you know, obviously that, you know, snowballed into other things. But like, I, like I, I do want to say something that even through all this, you know, like I do believe that some people don't know the difference between right and wrong. Um, there are people out there. There are pe- there are malicious and violent people. Right. Um, but like through all of this, like I never once believed that like I was a bad person. 
you know, like even like when I was stealing, um, you know, and, and like even like person like like you know, there's 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 stealing from a store or something like that. Then there's something more personal, like when you steal from somebody you know or something like that. You know what I mean? Like even like you know through all that, like I never really thought or believed that I was ever a bad person. That I didn't know that I was right, for, like if it was right from wrong. Like I always did, and doing it, like I knew it was wrong. But like in the midst of addiction, like you don't really, you know, that the addiction usually wins. You know, you you the conscience because at the end of the day however it's what also when that addiction wins and you do know that you're doing wrong that wears away at the soul you know uh, at, like one of the things for me that really defines addiction besides the the basic definition i use is can't stop two words just you know addiction is can't stop and um, and then there's this idea of drawing a line in the sand and walking over it and drawing another line and walking over that one. And just when your values erode, it's like people get clean and sober and they don't get happy instantly. Mm -hmm. Right. That's something we work for in recovery, because putting down the drugs and alcohol that that helped you get through all these, you know, negative self-talk and, and poor self-esteem. You know, we have all kinds of sayings in the 12 step program in the, in the halls, you know, as they say, there are all these sayings about, you know, like, thank God for poor self-esteem without it. I wouldn't have any at all. You know, <laughs> like, no, The list is long, <laughs> but I think that going against your values, doing wrong, when you know the difference between right and wrong is part of what erodes that self-esteem and the values. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And my, and a friend of mine, you know, a friend of mine, you know said explained to me you know something one time was like you know it's like like the higher power thing in in the um it's like when even when you do get sober right and you and you do something that's wrong like you know you do something that's wrong when you know you could have done it right that's like just pulls you away from that higher power like you said it eats away at your soul like and it's like you know and it's person to person you know what i mean it's how much can you deal with how much can you put up with that for how long until it breaks you and you do whatever it is you're going to do you know um and that that kind of like that's that's stuck with me for a long time because like it's right you know what i mean and like there is a balance to that too. It's like, okay, like I know I should wash my dishes. Right. You know, it's uh, <laughs> right. You know, let's keep it on a, let's keep it on a small scale. Right. Or, or like you gotta, you got a Dunkin' Donuts straw wrapper. Okay. And like my brain tells me to crumple it up and throw it out the window. <laughs> okay. But like, you know, my conscience tells me to crumple it up and put it in, you know, the trash or leave it in my truck and throw it out when I get, and it's like, okay, like which one, which one wins, you know? <laughs> and it's like, you know, if I throw it out the window, it's like, okay, yeah, that's probably not going to get me high today, you know, but it's going to eat away. It's going to take another bite out of my soul, no matter how big or small, it's going to take a chunk out and eventually it's going to be gone. If you keep on to that pattern and do those things when you know they're wrong and you do them anyways, you know, it's just. You know, I, I want to keep going on that 
train of thought because it's so interesting. And I also want to ask you more about your personal story. So you said that you started using very young. How young? Um, you know, I'll, I'll tell you my first real drug experience, right? So, um, you know, I, I, my, my mom would always tell me not to hang out with certain people, right? She always said this thing. She said, birds of a feather flock together. I actually got a tattooed on me, um, right? Birds of a feather flock together is what she said. And I always, you know, for some reason I was drawn to, you know, the, the troublemaker type kids, um, and, you know, one of my friends, Brian, his older cousin dated this drug dealer. And um, one day he had some ecstasy pills and I was 12 years old. If I wasn't if I wasn't 12, I had just turned 13 or something like that. And, you know, like I, I thought I was cool because I was hanging out with the with the older kids, you know, like partying or whatever. And uh, this kid, Kyle, he uh, he was like, hey, you want to try this? Right. And I thought Kyle was just being cool, like hooking us up, you know, so he gave me and my friend Brian one of the ecstasy pills. And it just it was a white pill, had three X's on it. And um, me and Brian were like, OK, let's split it. Right. And yeah. And then I had made a phone call because back then there wasn't any cell phones. Right. So I had made a phone call to my mom telling her that I was going to stay over my friend Jackson's house. Right. So I took this ecstasy pill. It was great. I felt great. We were hanging out at my buddy's house. And because I had left a message on my mom's phone, I sounded pretty messed up. And then so my mom called my sister and my sister asked my sister what I did. And my sister ratted me out. <laughs> and so like my first like real like drug experience, like a hard drug experience, my mom pulls up you know, and, and takes me out of my buddy's house, you know, she's like, get in the car right now. And uh, I had to spend the whole the rest of the night, like on the top bunk of the room that I shared with my little brother, all messed up on ecstasy, you know. <laughs> so like, you know, that was, you know, like my first, like, I, I hate to like, I don't really like to call it like the I have arrived type moment. But like, you know, that was, you know, I'll tell you what, when I did it, I wanted to do more of it. And, and I did. And it's one of the things that is like a hook of addiction is chasing after what the first or early experiences were like, you know, long after they stopped being that great, or, you know, that uh, eyes wide open type of experience. So and that spills out into life today still, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, like, does it manifest itself into different ways? Absolutely. But is it still there? 100%, you know? Um, What's the, it yeah. in that, in that description, Matt, is it still there? The yeah. after the high? What's the, uh, I mean, it's more of, I, 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 yeah, you could call it, you know, what, whatever it is, it, it's definitely a chase. You know, it's more like, you know, obsession would be a good word, you know, because like you can, you know, you can obsess basically over anything, you know, um, is there healthy and positive obsessions? Absolutely. Look at me in the van, you know, you, <laughs> you, know, you see me out there nearly every time you walk the dog by, you know, but like, but it's something that like, 
you know, excites me. It brings me joy. I enjoy working on it. And, you know, like, um, and I actually had a conversation with, with my therapist about the van because like, I, you know, you only have so much time in a day. Right. Um, and it's like, okay, like, what do you want to do with that time of that day? You know, obviously like I got to get some work in, I got to do work. And then it's like, do I want to go to the gym? Do I want to go surf or do I want to put my energy into working on the van? You know, and it's like, sometimes you have to make sacrifices, you know, um, you know, to put the time into the things that you want. And like, but like, I like going to the gym too. I don't think I obsess about going to the gym, but it makes me feel better, you know? Um, so it's like, but I had to sacrifice going to the gym to work on the van. <laughs> so it's like, um, you know, but, but I do believe that there, there can be healthy obsessions and it's like, you know, like the, the balance is like the most important thing now to me. And does it get out of whack? Absolutely. <laughs> uh, but, but when it gets out of whack, like you're the only person that knows, you know, I mean, it might spill out into other relationships in your life and people that are close to you might kind of see a, a difference in attitude or, or, or whatever, but, but like, you're really the only person that knows like, when things are out of balance for you, you know, um, it's like, you know, I, I, I still have trouble like sitting still, you know, I, um, <laughs> I've noticed that. <laughs> yeah. 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 You know, and I think that, uh, well, nowadays, you know, like you were referencing before cell phones, um, before everyone had a diagnosis of ADD or ADHD, uh, I think there's a huge, a high correlation between that and addiction. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And, and I, you know, when I was like, you know, a young kid, like all of that was like thrown at me too. You know, like I was, um, you know, it's like, okay, like he has like attention ADHD or something like, you know, he doesn't, you know, like I'll be honest, like, I'm not Mr. Mr. School, man. You know what I mean? I never, I've never applied myself in school. You know, the whole time I was ever in school, like I was like, you know, an adolescent, you know, you know, like a crazy adolescent who was like seeking out attention because I, I lived with my mom and my stepdad. They had two new kids. You know what I mean? They had, they had new kids. So like me and my older sister, we were just still there. So like I rebelled and, in, in you know, sought out attention um, you know, I don't know why or, 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 you know, I just, that's the way it was. Um, and so like, it's just, so I, I would always get tested. I would always go into the special ed classes. They would give me these tests and, and yada, 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 like, okay, your brain doesn't work good like this, this way. <laughs> um, and I, I, and even in high school, like I, I moved, uh, I moved from Massachusetts to New Hampshire because of addiction, because I wanted to go live with my dad because there was no rules there and I could do what I wanted at my dad's. My mom, my mom had rules. So when I was 15, I moved from Massachusetts to New Hampshire from a school with 400 kids to a school with 4,000 kids, right? In a different state. And I was a freshman. I was like, I was three quarters of the way through my freshman year and I transferred high schools. And um, I won't say that was the best move for me you know, um, but like I did what was comfortable for me, you know what I mean? Like I, I kind of like water seeks its own level, you know what I mean? So I found other like-minded people that, you know, wanted to get high and skip school and just do whatever. Um, 
aside from going to school and like applying myself at school, you know? So, so like school was never, you know, and it was never my thing. Um, I don't know. And that, I, I don't want to say it was, I've never tried it. <laughs> like realistically, I've never really tried school because I was just either like messed up, like mentally or high, you know? Um, so I barely graduated high school. I don't know how I graduated high school. I had about 20 detentions. I had to serve all my detentions in this big clock tower building before I could even take my finals because I just skipped school all the time. Cause I, you could, it was an open campus school. You could just walk off. So I would walk off and smoke weed and cigarettes and, you know, um, high school was just a, it was just a, I don't know. I, it's like kind of like a blur. Um, and realistically all my twenties, you know, I got sober, when I was 29. Um, So let me ask you this question. When you were 29, what was it? What was the moment kind of like the straw that broke the camel's back that said, I really got to get help? You know, you know, you know, that's, uh, that's a tough question. And like, I'm sure it's different for everybody. But just long story short, you know, um, where was I? Um, I don't know. I guess like, I, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you a quick short story of like uh, just maybe like a, a, a dark time. OK, so drug addiction led me to intravenous heroin use, intravenous cocaine use. You know, like I would wake up, I would try to sell enough drugs to go buy myself drugs and then and then repeat. You know what I mean? I turned out I. Uh, my car wasn't registered or insured. I didn't have a license. I was homeless. I was living in a Hampst- I was living in a conservation area in Hampstead, New Hampshire, in a tent. Okay. One day I was waiting to go pick up a check for my work. And mind you, I worked. I worked too. You know, I've always had a job. I've always worked since I was 12 years old. I had a paper route. I washed dishes. I was a prep cook. I worked in a lumber yard. I, you know, I worked, I had all kinds of jobs. Um, but I've always worked, you know, even like even all high and, you know, strung out, I'd show up to work. Sometimes they'd send me home, but, but I would show up. And um, so anyways, I, um, I'm waiting to pick up a check in, in the parking lot and some police came in there and they had parked the car on one side of the, one end of the street and on the other end of the street. So no matter what side I pulled out, they would pull me over. So I had about I had three pending cases, one of them in Massachusetts, two of them in New Hampshire. And I, I got pulled over in Hampstead. They arrested me for a similar charge I had pending. And um, I looked at the detective and I said, buddy, if you charge me with this shit, they're going to crucify me. And he was like, no, they don't see it like that. You'll be fine. Blah, blah, blah. So they tow my car. They arrested me. I bail myself out. Now I'm on foot. Okay, I have about three minutes left on a prepaid cell phone. And I call my dad and I say, Dad, I was like, kind of fucked. Like, I don't really know what to do. And he's like, all right, like, now, mind you, I can't go to my dad's house at this time because my stepmother hates me. My, you know, my brother, me and my brother got beef. And, you know, I'm not really cool with my dad at the time, but I, I didn't know who else to call. So I call my dad. I go to my dad's house. My dad gives me... I don't know, a handful of Klonopins and uh, and I get like a few Suboxone off my brother, okay? And my dad gives me another tent, okay? Mind you, I've been living in a tent for about three months in the Hampstead Conservation Area. So my dad gives me another tent 
and I get some detox med- medication from my family, right? You know, I get some street detox meds. And my dad, he's like, I'll put you up in another campground and I'll give you a tent, right? So basically he gives me these drugs in the tent, buys me a campsite and is like, sweat it out, okay? So now I'm trying to detox in, 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 a, in a campground in New Hampshire by myself with some street detox meds. And um, so what I do is I take the clonopins and I proceed to rob this campground, okay? Now it's nighttime. Um, so I go around to each trailer and I jimmy open the doors and I take whatever I think that I should take out of there. So now, uh, and then I would take my bounty and I would bring it back and I would stash it in my tent and then I would go back out because I could only carry so much. So now, I don't know, somebody blew the whistle on me and I see, I'm across the campground and I see blue lights in my tent area. So I'm like, shit, I'm like, I gotta get out of here, right? So I book it through the woods and now the campground is relatively close to my dad's house. So um, so I, I book it through the woods. I end up stealing some little girl's bike. I cruise down the street and I finally get to my dad's house and I throw the bike in the woods. I run up to my dad's house. I break into my dad's truck. I spend the rest of the night in the cab of my dad's truck, right? I wait for my stepmother to go to work. And then I go in the house and I talk to my dad. And he's like, what the fuck, man? What'd you do? And I'm like, dude, I got to get out of here, <laughs> right? So I call my Nana, my mom's mom, and she buys me a one-way ticket to Florida. So, but my car's in the impound and I can't get my car in the impound. All my stuff's in my car. And so... You know, I had to go to the tow truck guy and get some stuff. And I got a one-way ticket to Florida because my best friend Greg lives down there. I'm actually in Greg's wedding now. So, you know, promises and all that stuff. Um, but um, so I go down, my buddy Greg, he looks at me and he goes, okay, man. He's like, you can stay with me. He's like, but you don't live here. Okay. So I spend about three months down in Florida. I mean, it was like three to five months. I can't really remember. But anyways, I'm living in like a penthouse apartment on an air mattress in the floor and I'm sweating out a heroin habit. And, you know, like I shake it off for, you know, a few days. I end up getting a job selling hurricane windows. Okay. Door to door sales. Okay. (laughs) Now I'm kicking a vicious habit, walking around Southern Florida, knocking on people's doors, trying to sell them fucking hurricane windows. Okay. (laughs) And I have four pending cases in two different states up north. So I don't know if you've ever done door to door sales, but people call the cops on you all the time for soliciting when you're not supposed to. Okay. So now I'm paranoid as hell. Like I'm going to get wrapped up down in Southern Florida and then hopefully Massachusetts and New Hampshire will extradite me back up there so I can do time up there. So one day I'm sitting on the, I'm sitting on the deck with my buddy and he looked at me and he said, Matt, he said, what are you going to do? Right. And I was like, ah, so I had to make a decision. Either I'm going to stay down in Florida and be a fugitive, or I'm going to drive up North and turn myself in. Um, mind you, I don't have any money. Um, you know, I suck at selling hurricane windows. I do a better job at not selling them. Um, <laughs> and, um, so I take, you know, I somehow scrounge up enough money for a 36 hour train ride from Delray Beach, Florida to Penn Station, New York to Boston, right? Now my mom's friend picked me up in Boston and my mom let me stay at her house for one night, not even 24 hours. She's like, I'm not harboring a fugitive at my house. So my mom let me stay at her house 
literally that night, the next morning when we woke up, we drove, she drove me up to New Hampshire and she said, and I, and I turned myself in, you know, I went to Hampstead, New Hampshire police station. I said to the cop, I said, Hey, I got warrants. <laughs> he's like, you know, he looks in the computer. He's like, you know, I was like, he's like, Oh, I don't see any. And I was like, well, fucking look again. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. I was like, well, you better check again. He's like, Oh yeah, there they are. And then, so they arrest me. And they, you know, I, they bring me to jail and, you know, I, I spent about six months, you know, they, I, I ended up getting like a couple, you know, one to three or something like that, but I got all my time suspended on completion of a program when I was in there. It was like a drug rehab program. So now it's 2013 and I'm on superior court probation into, until 2015, I think, um, something like that. And, um, you know, I get out of jail. My mom lets me stay with her again. And, you know, I'm doing good for a while. And then, you know, I guess back to your question, what was the straw that broke the camel's back? Um, I don't really know. I was on Klonopin and I thought it would be a good idea to go to detox. <laughs> so, I mean, it's different for everybody. You, you know, know, I love that you just said that for people that are just listening to the podcast and can't see us, you know, Matt's over there with a straw saying the straw that broke the camel's back. Yeah. I don't really know because I was on Klonopin. You know, also, Matt, the image of you getting detox medication from family members mm -hmm. and being given another tent to live homeless and then robbing the campground and making your getaway on a stolen little girl's bicycle <laughs> like, yeah, about yeah. The, you know maybe that story that story it, it, it sounds funny okay but if you think about it it's not <laughs> well it's like what i say about all those stories like living them that's not a yeah, pretty picture was that little girl who doesn't have a goddamn bike now you know <laughs> I know. And it really is a, a story that I want to put in the, uh, you know, I know there's going to be a book after doing a couple of seasons of Liars, Thieves, Gluttons, and Whores. You know, there's oh, going to be a couple of good stories. Yeah. 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 So not to exactly wrap up at this moment, but tell us some of the more trying moments in recovery. Um, and then And then we will wrap up with some of the the brighter moments um, of, you know, like you said, the promises and you referred to the book. And if, again, listeners may not be aware when we're saying the book, we're not saying the holy book, the Bible, we're saying the holy Bible of AA, which is Alcoholics Anonymous. It's referred right. to as the big book. The big book. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I was given a shot by, by not, by not my family, um, you know, so basically somebody saw the rise and demise of me through his own eyes. Okay. So when I got out of jail in 2013, I got a job with this guy, Joe. Okay. Joe was a family friend. You know, my mom was the school secretary. All his kids went through the school. He has three kids of his own. I got a job working at his machine shops and me and Joe became really good friends. I was Joe's right-hand man. I would build, I would work on his house. I would work in the shop. I would do whatever, you know, he needed done, you know? And we became friends, you know, we would go to the bar, we would have beers, we would go up to his camp, he flies planes, you know, like I was his buddy, we were friends. And he saw me kind of slide downhill. 
And this guy, Joe, you know, he, uh, like I said, when you said, what was the straw that broke the camel's back? One day I went to him and I said, man, I'm fucked up. I think I go to D I think I need to go to detox. And he goes, you want to go now? And I said, (laughs) I said, yeah, I said, yeah, sure. Let's go now. (laughs) Right. And, um, this man, this man drove me to Foxborough, Massachusetts from Essex, Massachusetts, which is like an hour and a half drive. And he drove me down there and he brought me there and he paid, Joe paid for me to go to a, a, a spiritual retreat called the Plymouth house. Um, and he paid out of pocket. He paid, they don't take insurance. They do strictly big book work. I didn't know anything about this place. I didn't know anything about the big book. I went because Joe stuck his neck out for me. And on the way there, like, and I'll say this again, my family didn't do this, right? Somebody from the, from the streets who I didn't even know for a couple of years did this for me. Um, you know, so, it, it, you know, that, that kind of has like helped me a lot, you know, because like on the way up to the place, I called my mom from detox, basically I wanted a pat on the back saying that like, Oh, I'm, I'm going to rehab from detox, blah, blah, blah. And he, and she just said, yeah, I don't know why this guy's doing this for you. She's like, but you better count your blessings. And then basically hung up you know um so you know i i know you shouldn't do things out of spite sometimes but spite you know spite will get you somewhere i i don't know i mean like i i did a lot of this i did a lot of the book work you know like i I was more of like okay like i'll i'll uh i'll play your game you know i'll write your inventory i'll say these prayers and then at the end of it when it doesn't work i'm gonna be like I fucking told you so, you know? <laughs> okay. So, but I did it all. And lo and behold, it does, it does work. Um, you know, it's like one of those things. It's, 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 it's not, um, it's not hard. It's not easy. You, you got to do it. You know what I mean? Like, it's not, um, it's not for people that want it. It's not for people that need it. It's for people that do it, you know, like, and I, and I did, I did it honestly and thoroughly. And I want to say I'm a genius. My inventory was plain, you know what I mean? See spot run type of inventory, but it was true. And it was to the point, you know, and I did it and I said all these things and, you know, and then I'm almost 10 years down the line, you know, um, you know, I'm still here and like um, it's uh, it's, it's wild to even Matt, think about do you think you'll be somebody else's joe you know that's funny i um i was my sister's joe yeah and that, and it's cool to see you know what i mean my sister's been sober for almost a year and a half now and you know she was struggling you know like she was an alcoholic she was out there for a while because like she could manage her life but like was her quality of life great no but it was manageable until it wasn't Right. So I actually got her into treatment and, you know, got her up to Portland. She stayed in sober living and she's, you know, got a good job now and she's living, she's got her own apartment and she's doing a lot. She's doing great. And it's good to see. So, you know, it, it's, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's great. I'm happy for it. Cause I just, you know, at the end of the day, like I just want everybody to be happy and, you know, not have to worry about buying food at the grocery store. <laughs> or, or- robbing a child's bicycle to get away well, from the house. Yeah. <laughs> you, shouldn't be, you, you shouldn't be doing that. <laughs> um, Any final words for um, listeners? Just, you know, anything that you want to share about 
recovering now or what you uh, I don't I mean, know, to do with it, your van in the future or yeah I mean it's tough to uh get it all in in, in such a short amount of time you know um but like you know life is 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 funny um and i do believe fully that you can do whatever you can do whatever you want you literally can't you know um you know i like i used to be homeless living in a tent like and now you know like i got to remodel my own house i i, I started a construction business with a good friend of mine you know business is good i get to do good work with my friends all, all day you know um, i get to build this uh, this van you know like one day i was like hey i kind of want to like build a van so like i looked and I, I saw a van and i bought a van and then i built a van and now it's now it's in my driveway and it's just i, I get to park at places on the weekends and it's fun and you know it's like literally all you need to do is figure out what you want to do and figure out the first step you need to do to get there and it's the same thing with recovery you know what i mean it's like okay like do i want to get sober okay that i guess that's the first question you know if you don't keep getting high, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, I've sponsored people, you know, it's like, Oh, well, like, you know, like, I, I don't know if I want to be sober. I'm like, well, don't, you know, then, then don't, I, I'm not, I'm not going to, I'm not going to change that for you. Whatever I say, whatever I do is not going to change that for you. So you might as well just, and I'm not saying go do that, but like, you're the only person that's going to know that, you know, are you, do you want to stop? And then if you do figure out the right step to do it, figure out the figure out the first step you need to take to do it and you know that's it really and then just do it you have to do it. yeah it's kind of yeah. like the nike brand just do it <laughs> it is it's true you know what i mean like if you do it you know the way it's written the way it's laid out it worked for me i mean you know i can only speak from my own experiences you know um but it worked for me and, it, and you know like i i really do have a life that's second to none you know I, really I, really, do. I love hearing the transformation. I, I, you know, I told all our listeners that I walked by regularly and saw this. It's not just a van turned into, you know, a motor home. It's like customized. It's beautiful. And um, your work is incredible. And then Matt also invited me into his home, which he said he retrofitted and uh, and this is a wonderful city, you know, Portland, Maine is like up and coming and now you have your own construction company and his work is beautiful. And so, it, you know, again, it is a life second to none and boy, we can throw it away so easily. Um, I wonder if uh, we only have a couple minutes left, but can you share like what helps you keep on the broad highway as they call it or the you know i think it all back to that that balance thing you know what i mean like um you know keeping things like in balance as much as you can like i get it like life's crazy you know what i mean like you know i i built the van right so now i'm excited i want to take the van out every weekend but my lawn looks like shit <laughs> you know it's like, so it's like okay like you know, like you just kind of have to like keep that balance the best you can and like, you know, keep moving forward. You know, life's going to life's going to throw hits at you. You know what I mean? Like no matter what. So, um, yeah. You know, and it's, it's sleeping in a car, not, you know, it's living in the car. 
Uh, actually, I just wanted to thank you so much, Matt, for coming on LTGW and being a guest on my show. And um, I'm sure your story will help uh, innumerable other people. Yeah, and you know the, the the saga continues, you know, and it's all it's all good, you know. But I don't regret any of that stuff, you know what I mean? Like, would I change a couple things? Probably, but um, you know, like, but it did make me who I am today, and you know, I do like that person. So, you know, that's that's what it is, and and that's that's my story, you know. Well, part of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and li living out of the van on weekends is very different than living out of a car or out of a tent. Too. Yeah, now I'm just homeless by choice. <laughs> it's like a luxury homeless, which is great. I like, it. I'm good at being homeless. <laughs> I had some practice. Yeah. All right. Thank you very much. Do you suppose we'll hear stories about addiction? We might. Oh. Stories about recovery, too. Mm, but mostly stories about how addiction turns smart, sensitive people into liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Liars? And thieves? And gluttons and whores. Oh, liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Oh, my. Liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Oh, my. Liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Oh, my. Are you a fan of Liars, Thieves, Gluttons, and Whores podcast? Do you want to support the show and show off your love for LTGW? Look no further than You Can Do Merch Store, brought to you by host and creator Nancy Adair. 